Hey, one thing before I start my sermon that I meant to mention is Easter Sunday, you're fine, we're going to have one of our uh, pre-life group breakfasts. It's going to be pancakes that morning. Mmm. So we'll have pancakes Easter Sunday morning. I think it starts at 9 back in the community outreach center. And then the kids will, what? 8.30? This is why I have people uh, that watch after. 8.30 come and, man, we'll have pancakes. And then the kids are going to have an Easter egg hunt. George, that's not, yeah, wherever George is. Yeah, anyhow, yeah, he, he left because he was going to children's church. But anyhow, uh, Josh, it's, it's the Easter egg hunt. Now, you have to go to your life group. And anyhow, we'll, we'll talk about that later. They'll, we'll, we'll call the people that show up. But anyhow, I think the kids, is that nursery and children? Both have. So there'll be some special emphasis uh, that Sunday morning. Um, hey, so I have one final message on a reason to believe. And I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, I think this, is, this will be the 11th message. Uh, this is... The final proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And we've talked about several things, and so much of uh, apologetics centers eventually on the resurrection of Jesus. And so I, I want to offer one final proof, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to read that passage that we've been reading. For several weeks, but this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, who would be Peter, then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And I want you to particularly note this morning verses 7 and 8. This is what we come to. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James. Now, that's going to be James, the brother of Jesus, not the brother of John, if you'll just make a mental note. After that, he was seen by James then by all the apostles, and then also note verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me, Paul, also as by one born out of due time. Um, the one final proof of the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus is this, the sudden and radical departure by the Christians from their Jewish identity and traditions. The final proof of the resurrection of Jesus was the sudden and radical departure by the Christians from their Jewish identity and traditions. Now I'm, I'm stating that. Now let me talk about that. 
This is actually an argument that is contained in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Um, and it kind of sparked something in my mind. And so much of what I present today is drawn from that, his book. Understand this. We have to understand the culture into which Christianity came into or sprung out of, really what we ought to say. This is what you need to understand, is that the Jews staunchly adhered to their national identity and their religious traditions. Just understand this, that the Jews staunchly adhered to their national identity and their religious traditions. Let's talk about a few of those. Uh, the sacrificial system. This was the way that they approached God in the sacrificing of animals in the temple. Uh, the second one of those would be the law. They approached God through the Mosaic law, and that was the way that they would be made right, being a right standing with God as if they were obedient to the law. The law is very important. The sacrificial system, the law is very important. The Sabbath which was Saturday, or technically Friday night into Friday night sundown until Saturday sundown, but basically Saturday, their Sabbath. Very important in Jewish life. Uh, monotheism, that there is one God. Uh, most of their cultures around them were polytheistic. Many gods, no, the Jews. In fact, I don't even know of another religion in ancient times. It's monotheistic, but the Jews were monotheistic. The Lord our God is one. Uh, the fifth element that I would mention this morning is the Messiah. That this, there would be this messianic figure who would come and would redeem them from the powers that enslaved them. And so understand that despite persecution, deportation, exile into countries... Centuries and millennium pass and they stick to their national identity and their religious traditions to this day. Think about that. To this day, other than I would say of all of those, those five things I mentioned except for the sacrificial system because there is no temple. All of those things. You can find Jews today who adhere to these religious practices and they hold their, their identity, they are Jews. Now, you say, well, preacher, why are you making such a big deal about that? Because think about the other ancient cultures. Which, which one of the ancient cultures and peoples still exists today? I don't know, have you, have you run into any Hittites lately in the streets of Huntington? Jebusites, Amorites, I was going to make some up at this point, but I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> it's going to make up some that y'all, you know, you just, there are all those ites, you know, in the old, it's like, okay, you know, all these people, the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites and all the ites, and I was going to go through a bunch of them, but I, I'm just, I'm blowing it right now. I can't think of what I was going to say. Uh, where, where are the Persians? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the 
Assyrians. Are they still in existence today? Have they maintained their national identity and their religious practices? And the answer is no. And that is because those other cultures, understand this, were far more fluid uh, in their culture. Uh, they, religiously, they were polytheistic, so it's like if you have a bunch of gods, if a new culture comes along and they've got some new gods, it's like, well, we just kind of went with that. Ended up over here with some new gods. Huh. Or they, they were also culturally syncretistic, which means they just kind of uh, blended with some other things. So here came some other people, and they got mixed in with us, and we just kind of, we lost our identity and our religious practices, and we just, we end up something hundreds and thousands of years later different than where we started. And so today they do not exist. And there may be some other exceptions here, but the Jewish people still staunchly adhere to their national identity and their religious traditions. Now, I'm asking you to think with me. If God were going to start, was going to start a new religion in the first century, the hardest place to start something new would be among the people that staunchly hold to their religious practice and their traditions. There would have been so many other places where you could have started something new because they're just going with anything new. Their culture and their religion is so fluid. Um, I think of uh, uh, the old musical Fiddler on the Roof and the Jewish couple sings tradition, tradition. Or, well, I don't know. I, that's, I don't know. I ought to have some lines from that. Any, anybody? Are you going to leave me hanging here? Nobody else. Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, that's fine. Y'all need to get out more often, okay? I think I saw that live when I was about eight. That would have been 1970. Uh, but the Jewish couple sings tradition. Why? Because they were Jew. We, we stay with what we do. This is what we've always done for 4,000 years. This is who we are. Okay, understand today that the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And the philosophical question is, why? Why would they so willingly depart from their national identity and their religious traditions. Why would they suddenly and radically depart from what it meant to be a Jew? If you look historically, I know some things it wasn't. It wasn't the teachings of Jesus. It wasn't the miracles of Jesus. It wasn't the death of Jesus. None of those things radically 
changed them. There was one event that radically changed everything about their lives. And it was the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It changed everything almost overnight. What did it change? Sacrificial system. Nope. Not going to do that anymore because my Savior died on a cross to pay for my sins. He was the end of the sacrificial system in the temple. They changed the way that they were made right with God. It wasn't through the law. No. Mm -mm. What I, they'd been taught for 2,000 years. They walked away. It was through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And by my faith, I am made in a right relationship with God. They changed their day of worship. <gasps> From Saturday to Sunday. They changed their Unitarian monotheism to a Trinitarian monotheism. They said Jesus was God. In theological terms, even though the, even though the, the Romans put above Jesus' head the accusation, he claimed to be or he, the king of the Jews, the Jews did not kill Jesus because he claimed to be their king. They killed Jesus because he claimed to be God, which was blasphemy against their monotheism. The fifth thing that I mentioned earlier is that the Messiah who was to come to redeem them from the forces that enslaved them was crucified. <laughs> A Messiah who was crucified? How anti-Jew could you be? That doesn't make any sense. So you understand that everything that the Christians had, as Jews, had, had been instilled in them for centuries changed. The sacrifice, their way of salvation, their day of worship, their view of God, the Trinity, and a crucified Messiah. And it all flipped because of one event, the resurrection of Jesus. I want to give you two people quickly as cases in point. The first would be James, the brother of Jesus. This is what's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. He talks about James. Uh, James, the brother of John, was uh, executed uh, by Herod in uh, Acts 12. This is, this is the brother of Jesus. What do we know about the brother of Jesus? He was not a believer in Jesus during his three-year ministry. In fact, the Gospels record that 
His brothers, Jesus' brothers, including James and his mother, they came to Jesus one day. You remember this story? It was the first family intervention recorded in the Bible. We do not think you are right in the head, Jesus. All this talk, big talk, we think you just need to come home and rest a little while. James is involved in that intervention. He is not a follower of his own brother as the Messiah. But he becomes one of the preeminent apostles in the early church. In fact, you see that in Acts 15. He is, he is one of the primary voices when they ask for leaders to speak. And eventually, James, the brother of Jesus, well, not only does he write uh, the book of James, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that this James was martyred in the year 62 AD, uh, instigated by the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. He is stoned to death. And he remained firm in his belief in his brother, half-brother, was the Jewish Messiah. And what was it that changed? 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He saw the risen Lord. Everything flips. Not on Jesus' teaching, not on his miracles, not on his death. No, but he was raised from the dead. And they were willing to, James was willing to walk away from everything and he was ultimately willing to give his life for what he knew was true, that Jesus was raised from the dead. My second illustration is Saul of Tarsus. He is actually, and so he's writing in 1 Corinthians 15, of course, and he comes to verse 8, and finally he appears to me last of all. Think about who Paul was and what he turned from and what he walked away from. He was raised in Tarsus, which would have been one of a handful uh, in the top three or four or five intellectual centers in the ancient world. It was a leading educational center. And so Saul of Tarsus was well-educated uh, in his day. He was, because of that and because of where he was raised, he was, he was immersed in the Greek culture. He was fluent and well-educated. It was the culture of the day. He was a Roman citizen, which was very rare for a Jewish person to be a Roman citizen. To top that off, he was trained by one of the preeminent rabbis of his day in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. Starting, he would have started about the age of 14. He would have been sent from Tarsus to Jerusalem and set. This would be like going to Harvard or Princeton an Ivy League school. No, this is the best of the best. He is the cream of the crop. After that, he becomes a Pharisee, which was the leading uh, religious party of his day. Not just that he's a Pharisee, but he is zealous. What is he zealous about? Their identity and their religion. So he's not just a marginal Jew. No, this guy's all in. He describes this in Galatians, uh, Galatians 1, 11 through 14, 
Uh, he says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Understand, Saul of Tarsus was a person of passion, position, and power to such an extent that he persecutes the church. Why? Because they had departed from all the things that were sacred to him. And so it says in Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul is a zealous persecutor of the church, which, which means that he would have known of Jesus' teachings, miracles, he would have known of Jesus' death, and he would have known of the rumors, the superstition that had been propagated by the Christians that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But none of it changed him. None of that. Of course not. But in a very short amount of time, Saul of Tarsus completely changes. So that, and I've just read Acts 9, 1 and 2. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians and have them put to death. A few days later, we pick up the story in verse 20. This is a few days later. Acts 9, 20. Immediately, he, Saul of Tarsus, preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard it were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? Saul of Tarsus is so changed that for the next 30 years of his life, he becomes the leading missionary, church planner, evangelist, theologian, writer. He writes 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He is the dominant force in Christianity for 30 years. In fact, such, to such an extent that his theology and his perspective has not only uh, dictated who we are as evangelical Christians today, but is really uh, formed, uh, fashioned Western civilization. That's not an overstatement. 
in 30 years. He was all in. In fact, it didn't matter what they did to him. They tried to kill him. They, they, tried, they persecuted him. It was amazing that the things he went through, the hardship and the persecution, he has, and there's a couple of these sections in his writings, but in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, he, he starts in this little thing and he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils, a lot of perils, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Why? Why does Saul of Tarsus, in the course of just a few days, com completely change? What is the motivation? Why would a man do that? Because the verses I read that I didn't read in, verse, in chapter 9 of Acts, says that on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter that day with the risen Lord. The resurrection of Jesus completely changed his life. And he was willing to put his life on the line based on the reality, not for Jesus' teachings, not his miracles, not even Jesus' death on the cross. No, he had seen the risen Lord, and he based the rest of his life on that. Philosophically, the final proof of the resurrection of Jesus was the sudden and radical departure by Christians from their Jewish traditions, not just James, not just Saul of Tarsus. The question is, philosophically, is there any other more rational explanation for this change in their life other than the fact that the resurrection really happened. I know we don't generally think in these terms, but what? What? What's the explanation? Why would these people do that? Why would they say those things? Why would they live that out to the death if it wasn't true? The final proof 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the transformation of life of his followers who were willing to die for his resurrection being true and real. What is the other explanation for those people doing that? You see, the followers of Jesus lived out the reality of the resurrection. They transformed their culture. 2,000 years later, Christianity is the most followed religion in the world. In fact, Christians outnumbered Jews Today, 2,000 years later, 3,000 to 1. And it all hinges not on what Jesus taught, not on his miracles, not what he did, not his death on the cross, but one event, the resurrection. I want you to stand with me this morning, and I want to... I want to um, I want to go back to where we started 11 weeks ago and I have one final challenge to you and then we'll be done we started 11 weeks ago with a scripture in 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 15 And it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. I've asked you for these 11 weeks that you would use your minds in a culture that is increasingly not operating from a Christian worldview to say what are the reasons we have to believe in the Christian faith. Um, I hope that you have taken that challenge seriously. I believe there will be people in your lives that it's not going to be enough for you to say, oh, well, I have this warm feeling about Jesus in my heart and I just know it's real. It's not going to be enough for them. And and maybe some of the resources I've mentioned or messaged me, I'll, I'll get you those things. You can Google them. I've asked you to think and establish that defense in your mind of why we believe what we believe. But what I have to share with you cannot just be in our heads. It ultimately has to be in our hearts. Jesus didn't come to change our minds only. He came to change our hearts. I don't know, maybe you've sat there all these weeks preacher has ranted and raved and quoted ancient writers and spoke philosophically in ways I wouldn't normally in church and you've just been processing and I want you to know it doesn't come down to your mind being convinced 
No, like so many of those people, like Augustine, C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, eventually, yes, when our mind is convinced, our heart must surrender. And to say, I choose, if he is God, to give him control of my life, I surrender. And maybe you would be willing to take that step today to say no. Not only is my mind convinced, but my heart will surrender. There's a third thing. In fact, it may be the greatest challenge for the majority of people in the room today and the people that watch my live stream. You and I must live out the implications of what we say we believe. If this is true, then it demands that we live in a certain way. It is what I called, we must be rationally consistent. If Jesus is Lord and I've surrendered my heart to him. I do not have a choice on a daily basis to say, I want to do this, I want to do that. No, I gave up that decision-making to the one who is Lord, who is the sovereign one, who has, I've given, I've relinquished the lordship of my life to him. And let me tell you why it matters today, Christians. It's because with your circle and the people that you encounter, you can make all the intellectual arguments that your pastor has given you in the last 11 weeks. But if that person does not see you living out the implications of what you say you believe, they will dismiss what you say. I've described it all along as we've gone down this rational defense of the gospel of Christianity it paints us into a corner I, and either be rationally consistent or walk away I don't know that the preacher ever thought he would say that from the pulpit Because the world will only be changed by those who are all in. And probably many don't come to faith in Christ. I don't know. I don't want to say that. But because they intuitively know that's what you say. But that's not how you live. And so they dismiss what we have to say. Because they, we, they know it's not consistent with how we live. Um, I'm, I'm going to pray and I'm going to be at the front. If today is a day that you would cross the line of heart surrender to say, I'm in, then come and visit with me. Um, I'll be at the front. 
you're a Christian already, I think the greatest challenge today is not really the intellectual arguments, but it's the life. Is it consistent with what you say you believe? Let me lead us in prayer, and then I'll be at the front to visit with you. Um, Father, we, um, Father, we are humbled to think about who you are and what you've done. And um, Father, I pray that it would dominate our minds and our hearts. I pray that you'd convict us, Father, of not living out what we say we believe. And I pray that as we do, that, Father, you would use us uh, to lead others to you. And, uh, Father, we trust that to you. We pray that you'd be with us this week as we encounter people wherever they are. And, uh, Father, we just pray that you'd change us. And, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you.